Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 120 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. 120, guys. I'm killing it. This is 121. What? This is 121. That's what, yeah, you confused me as well. Well, it's, I have 120 books. It's episode 121. I started with 125, so in 120 episodes, I've lost five books. Good job, me. Yay. Wow. That's very impressive, Bailey, and definitely mm-hmm. the purpose of the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, impressive in a certain kind of way. Thank you. <laughs> What's up, guys? How's everybody doing? Toby, I heard you got kicked out of jury duty today. I did. They didn't even want to see me. I just filled out my clipboard, and they said, that's it. That's your service for the year, and they booted me. It was fantastic, honestly. Is there even like 12 people in Humboldt? There are like 15, so I'll, I'll be back. Look, he's not one of the guys that committed the crime. I don't know how many people we can spare here. There's the criminal, the lawyers, and the jury. That's it. It just keeps switching. <laughs> it is my turn to commit the crime next month, so I'm a little scared. I do wonder if it has to do with the fact that I wore my Redwall shirt. Like, I didn't I didn't really think about it. And then, like, I was there sitting in the big room with all the other people. Yeah, I looked down, and I was like, oh, where am my Redwall shirt? I wonder what the, you know, if I go in front of the lawyers, what will they think of this? The defendant's a rat. Yes. The defendant is Clooney the Scourge. I'm like, innocent. (laughs) Uh, I did the opposite. Obviously, I dressed up wanting to get on the jury and it did not work. Oh, the the answer is somewhere in the middle. So it's a it's a Watership Down shirt. Does anybody have any shame to report? Yes. Ooh. Ooh. A rarely spotted Toby shame. The the endangered spotted Toby shame (laughs) is what I heard. Yes, I bought um, a copy. It's... You might have to look it up for yourself, but is one of the grossest and most intriguing book covers. Um, and that's also shouting out my friend John Lindsay's Body High, which is probably the most disgusting book cover I've ever seen. But uh, this one is called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Ligotti. By Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> it's the trains conspiring against the human race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a manifesto, that one. Uh, this one... Thomas Ligotti is a horror writer, a very uh, pessimistic person, and this is a series of essays in which he lays out his depressing worldview. It's supposed to be really, really good. Um, and the the cover is like, I don't even know, it's like some human swamp monster gross face that's like kind of melting into a wall and smoking a cigarette. It's real gross. It's real eye-catching, and I can't wait to read it. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like oh, that you cover. saw it, yeah? Yeah, no, I don't it's like gross. it. It's gross. Mm-hmm. It looks like he's made out of boogers. I don't this know. This is a clean podcast. Please don't say boogers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're going to have to bleep boogers. Oh, I said it again. <laughs> Andrew, do you have any shame? No. Why would no. you accuse me of that? Have you How read any you? books, even? Yeah, I've read books. Any questions about them? <laughs> yeah, how many? 62 for the year now. Not a real fruitful uh, inter... Bellum. I consider these podcast war. So yeah, interbellum <laughs> period. Um, I, I oh actually, this is a good thing to add. I, based on Toby's um, not recommendation, opposite of recommendation, I read a uh, Wise Blood by Flannery oh. O'Connor because I just had to know. Andrew, why? Because <laughs> it was real short on Audible, and I was yeah, like, I gotta, true. I gotta check this out. Uh, and uh. I am, um, I'm glad I have read it. I'm yeah. not glad while i was reading it it is a a bizarre book and shout out to the performer whose name i do not have to hand for making the main character hazel absolutely repugnant from the very beginning (laughs) with the terrifying voice he gave him can attest to this i also i mean read the book that i read for this podcast portrait of the artist as a young man and the third in the Hercule poirot series poirot investigates which is a series of 14 short mysteries Mm. So three, three in two weeks, not too bad. Though I am about to go on a vacation where I plan to knock out quite a few books. I have a couple of books that have gotten pushed to the side based on just forgetting to bring them with me places. Uh, And 
uh, that I'm really enjoying that I'll knock out pretty soon. I'm, I'm reading Wild Seed by Octavia E. Butler and really enjoying it, but oh, I keep leaving yeah. it in the wrong place. <laughs> so <laughs> that's your plan, Andrew, to read a few oh, books no. of your vacation? You can't start it now, Dylan. I've gone past being afraid of you. <laughs> <laughs> I've transcended this. Uh, and I'm also reading in an, an incredibly nerdy turn of my life, the first in the uh, Drist Dorden series of D&D books. Andrew. Book called Homeland. That's on my to-read list. <laughs> it's pretty good. I'm, I'm like uh, probably three quarters of the way through. I'm having a good time. Nice. I, I picked it up uh, out of curiosity, mostly because I want to get to the fourth one, which is supposed to be quite good. Uh-oh. I only have the first one on the, on the to-read list. <laughs> well, well, but we'll, well see. I, think, I think they're all like well thought of, um, but the, mm-hmm. the fourth one came out first, and then he released a prequel trilogy, and then the like Reddit thread I read said, you should actually read the prequel trilogy first. It helps. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, we should mention also, that's R.A. Salvatore, right? The author? Yes, R.A. Salvatore wrote these books. Yeah. Andrew, can you describe for the audience of Pedro's, because I think they'll appreciate it, the structure of your vacation because it sounds like an absolute dream yeah so this is actually what i was made me start on this train it's a a lake house vacation jillian's family have a a lake house that we visit and the structures of the day is completely unstructured basically (laughs) we have a a standing like time where we're going to have dinner every day and other than that it is book reading you know fooling around on your phone there's a pickleball court within walking distance there's obviously a lake and it is expected that you basically do nothing all day. So I am very Amazing. excited. <laughs> well, yeah, opposite <laughs> of how I always plan my vacations. And then when I have one like this, I'm like, oh, wait, this is actually what you're supposed to do. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. I would peace out so fast. I'd be like, bye, family. See you later. See you at six. And, and <laughs> no one would even like bat an eye about it. What about your daughter? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it here. I got the transition ready, guys. We just got a portrait of what your vacation's going to look like. Um, But Andrew, um, can you give us any insight into a book you read this week? I can because I read a book this week and it is called (laughs) A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Ooh, portrait, portrait, picture painter. Picture man. (laughs) (laughs) yes betty spent all of her brain power on that transition and she was not prepared for the echo fair (laughs) so yeah i read a book you've probably heard of by an author that i'd be surprised if you hadn't heard of and it is my first foray into a novel by james joyce i looked at his bio a little bit sorry toby i didn't learn anything i promised (laughs) but i was surprised to realize he actually only published i think three novels and This has been on my shelf for a really long time. Somehow I avoided reading it in college, even though this sort of era and style of literature was a lot of what I studied in my like reading courses, but didn't end up hitting. And here we are today. Mm. Nice. So to give you a little log line about the book, in James Joyce's semi-autobiographical debut novel, Stephen Dedalus grows from a shy, nervous child to a kind of irritating university student. (laughs) Living in an Ireland largely dictated by religion and Irish identity, Stephen bucks and strains against expectations to take on a dictated mantle and tries to become just and simply himself. Mm. Mm. Dedalus, the son of Icarus. No, the father of Icarus. The father of Icarus. (laughs) Picture man. (laughs) (laughs) bailey is done (laughs) and it's hard to give much more of a plot summary of this book but i will try to sort of describe maybe the structure of it which is a little maybe helpful basically james joyce writes in a sort of modernist style about youth and growing up he specifically uses school as a framing device for a lot of what he's doing and so we get like a little section that's sort of amorphous and then he's at like a private school in like a castle that's like a a very specific like even though it's in ireland british style young person's college he then goes to sort of a more urban environment college and then he goes to university and that's like the three major phases of the book um and stephen grows up and that is basically the plot of the book let's go into some elves and orcs and then maybe some more of the natural plot will come out through that because it's a pretty slim volume 
and it's hard to like say what happens to Steven um, yeah. as it goes on. Can you just give um, a logline of a James Joyce work like in one sentence? No. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse the call to action. Um, <laughs> so um, an elf about this book is the first half of the book is actually really absorbing. Um, it's where the experimental style of of the book is sort of strongest and Joyce creates feelings in the reader that really like smack of childhood. In particular, there's a section um, when he's at that boarding school uh, regarding a punishment that makes you feel like the anger you would have felt at something unfair. That's like that sort of all-consuming anger as a child mm-hmm. and maybe as an adult, but like that's particularly, I feel like, powerful in a kid who's like, this is just not fair. And I was like genuinely angry for this child. I, I think Bailey can't identify with the feeling that unfair things are, are angering. I was trying not to, you know, chime in, but yes, that's me. It me. <laughs> I, I was going to say, Bailey, you maybe still have this, but I think that this section will uh, would resonate with you. In an additional elf that sort of continues on from the same one, um, you really love the young Stephen, or, or I did I, at least. I don't know if everyone does, um, but I really liked him. And that all comes down to what I think Joyce is getting at, which is he's sort of creating a landscape of emotion. To give you an example of sort of what happens in the sections you read, like Stephen falls into a puddle, gets a cold, gets sick like philosophizes to himself while he's sick and then like talks to his friends. And that's kind of what that whole like 50 page section of the book is. <laughs> um, but like, so like the plot isn't that important, but what he does is creates like this very vivid and true feeling. And I thought that that is really cool. And when we get to the orcs, maybe we'll talk about this a little more. Elf side of this is when that emotion is raw and relatable. This book is really cool. Um, to tip my hand slightly for the future. I was going to say, I feel like we're leaning toward a lot of orcs, but we'll see. <laughs> so, like, uh, let me give you a couple examples of what this, like, Joycean text is, so you have sort of an idea of what I mean when I say it's slightly experimental. I think it's formally would be categorized as modernist. Again, sorry, y'all, y'all are hitting me at literally the thing I wrote, like, most of my essays in college about, so like, <laughs> this is potentially a pretentious part of me. Um <laughs> This is page 22 in that early section when he's at the boarding school. And this is just um, basically Joyce describing what Stephen felt like when he was waking up sick and sort of disoriented. Quote, it was not Wells's face. It was the prefect's. He was not foxing. No, no, he was sick, really. He was not foxing. And he felt the prefect's hand on his forehead. And he felt his forehead warm and damp against the prefect's cold, damp hand. That was the way a rat felt, slimy and damp and cold. Every rat had two eyes to look out of, sleek, slimy coats. Little, little feet tucked up to jump, black, shiny eyes to look out of. They could understand how to jump, but the minds of rats could not understand trigonometry. When they were dead, they lay on their sides. Their coats dried then. They were only dead things. And that's just like Joyce's way of saying an older boy checking in on his younger charges felt this child's head. Um, <laughs> is this before or after Ulysses? Before, right? Before. Yeah, yeah. Before, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's an example of like him sort of creating like an internal like agita about like feeling sick through just experimenting with how he puts words on the page. There are about 20 semicolons in what I just read. Semicolon? More like mini colon. Continue. I'm so glad you said that because (laughs) that's so true. (laughs) And to give you an example of um, a section of, I think, really nice text from later on when um, Stephen is older and a bit more mature. This is when he's at the uh, not boarding school in Dublin proper. He's been called to a meeting with like with a priest who is basically his principal. Um, and I think it's just a very effective way of sort of capturing how you feel when you're in a meeting, but they haven't talked about why you're at the meeting just yet. Mm. Stephen followed also with his ears the accents and intervals of the priest's voice as he spoke gravely and cordially of indifferent themes, the vacation which had just ended, the colleges of the order abroad, the transference of masters. The grave and cordial voice went on easily with its tail, and in the pauses, Stephen felt bound to set on it again with respectful questions. He knew that the tale was a prelude, and his mind waited for the sequel. Mm. This seems like a book that I somebody... I dated in college would try to explain to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, but have you ever like thought about Stephen Mal- what Stephen Malcolmus is doing with pavement or like watch the Godfather? <laughs> 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 Little Barbie reference for the, for, for you folks out there. Um, 
those are examples of what I liked about the book. He is really good at explaining things that are relatable in sort of unexpected ways, but that makes it feel true. Now, y'all ready for orcs? The meat's back on the menu, boys. You beefed up that one elf pretty hard, so I'm ready. Well, it was different angles of the same elf. It was Legolas older and younger. I don't care about spoiling this book because there's not a plot to spoil. So if this is important to you, skip ahead to the facts. I'm not going to say anything too wild. Don't worry. I'm not going to like tell you the last sentence or anything. But I am going to talk about the end of the book because it's important to my experience. Um, He grows up to be a freaking little goober. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, Um, would you say he grows up to be a freaking booger? No, a little goober is is the most appropriate thing for Stephen Dedalus in his university days. Got it. To be fair, the book is in sections and it ends with him as like a young university student and who is at their best, like most caring and like fun to be around when they're a young university student. But you think you are at the time and then you look back and you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. And to Joyce's credit, (laughs) Stephen thinks he is at the time. (laughs) Well, hey, maybe I'm talking myself around here because that's definitely accurate to what Stephen's thinking. Um, (laughs) And I was like thinking if I was at a bar or a restaurant and he wasn't at the table over me and I was hearing his conversation, I would think he sucked. (laughs) (laughs) He philosophizes. He like talks down to people. He gets people to come around with him so he can philosophize at them. And it is pages and pages and pages of it. And the other people go along with it as though it's like the most interesting stuff in the world. And yeah, that is part of two sections that made the end of the book difficult. This large philosophizing section when he's this young, cocky university student, literally like two, three different people follow him around. And we're like, tell me what you think beauty is. And he's like, ah, yes, 40 pages where I am going to talk about what I think beauty is. I will reference Thomas Aquinas and (laughs) Aristotle and all this stuff. Mm. And we're going to, this is what's important for me. And then the other part that's hard, and it's a weird theme in to read list books, but there's a large middle section that's just about Catholic theology. (laughs) Catholic theology in the two read list podcast is pushed by Matchbox 20 for us. (laughs) Exactly. We love it. (laughs) Though, actually, I think it has commonly been an orc whenever it shows up. So, like, there is a section of the book, which is a sermon about hell and what hell is. And I think I do not have the math here, but I think if you measured it, it would be 10 to 15 percent of the words in the book. And that is a lot of this book. Oh boy. Is it a wise blood crossover? <laughs> Does it connect yeah. to the plot or it's just kind of like Victor Hugo wants to talk about the Parisian sewer system? It connects to the <laughs> plot. It creates a, this a religious awakening in Stephen that he then sort of abandons okay. later. <laughs> but no, it's accurate. It's like it, it accurately presents like a kid being like, oh, gosh, this is what I'm, I got to get into. But it is so unbalanced and strange. Ultimately, I think this book is like a totally believable and valid path that someone would take like you know a portrait of a young person but i don't think that that story of that life is satisfying when it ends where this ends Mm. it feels incomplete and you know Mm -hmm. that's probably incredibly intentional by james joyce for me i just didn't feel like it felt complete to me and for that reason i will give it three stars i did really enjoy the first half of it mm. and i'll keep it on my shelf oh nice it's gonna be two star central no okay, no the first cool. half is genuinely like quite engaging okay. okay i thought it was gonna be four star central well guess what Ooh. right in the middle that's where my train stops <laughs> mm. <laughs> Toby, do you have any facts on mr james joyce yes i do james augustine aloysius joyce The man, the myth, the legend, was born on the 2nd of February, 1882. He was an Irish novelist, poet, and literary critic. He's uh, known for contributing largely to the modernist avant-garde movement and is regarded as one of the most influential and important writers of the 20th century. By who? Surprise! (laughs) (laughs) Um, We may have all heard of his novel Ulysses, which came out in 1922. It is a huge landmark text in which the episodes of Homer's Odyssey are paralleled in a variety of literary styles, particularly stream of consciousness. I'm a bigger fan of the sequel Ulysses S. Grant. (laughs) 
Uh, his other well-known works are the short story collection Dubliners, came out in 1914, and the novels A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, 1916, and Finnegan's Wake, 1939. So he liked to uh, mull over his novels and works. Joyce was born in Dublin into a middle-class family. He attended the Jesuit Clongowes Wood College in County Kildare. That is the name of the school he starts at in the book. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And then he briefly attended the Christian Brothers-run O'Connell School. Um, he had a bit of a chaotic family life uh, because of his father's unpredictable finances, but he was an excellent student at the Belvedere College and then graduated from University College Dublin in 1902. I have a confession. I always thought that this book was like a Romana Clef, like really his story. I think it kind of you know? is. That mirrors exactly oh. what happens wow. in the book. I didn't really talk okay. about it, but yeah. like part of the reason he moves schools is because his father like lose it, makes and loses money a lot. Okay, I'm not so dumb. <laughs> no, you're very smart, Bailey. <laughs> Don't let James Joyce make you feel Thank dumb. You. Yes. Um, in 1904, he met his future wife, who I love her name, was Nora Barnacle. Ooh. They moved to mainland Europe. He briefly worked in Pula and then moved to Trieste in Austria-Hungary. Worked as an English instructor there, um, except for an eight-month stay in Rome, working as a correspondence clerk and three visits to Dublin. Joyce resided uh, there in Austria-Hungary until 1915. In Trieste, he published his book of poems, chamber music, and his short story collection, Dubliners, and began serially publishing A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man in the English magazine The Egoist. Interesting choice. Interesting. For most of World War I, he lived in Zurich, Switzerland, where he worked on Ulysses. After the war, he briefly returned to Trieste and then moved to Paris in 1920, which became his primary residence until 1940. Where Hemingway followed him around as in, described in movable. Yes, scenes. it's true. I don't have uh, the facts on their friendship, but they were buddies. They were, it's just funny. Hemingway describes it as like the first time he's there for a while. He's like, where, where, where does Joy, when does Joyce come through? What, what restaurants does he go to? <laughs> <laughs> So like, but Pretty like, much. what about Joyce? What do you think he's doing now? Yeah, you know, this, this would be <laughs> such a good story if, if Joyce were here. <laughs> um, Ulysses was first published in Paris in 1922, but its publication in the United Kingdom and the United States was prohibited because of perceived obscenity. Copies were actually smuggled into both countries and pirated versions were printed until the mid-1930s when publication finally became legal. Uh, Joyce started his next major work, Finnegan's Wake, in 1923, and he published it 16 years later in 19. 19- 1939. Um, during this time, he traveled widely. He and Nora were married in a civil ceremony in London in 1930, but they'd been together for a long time before that. Um, he made a number of trips to Switzerland, frequently seeking treatment for his increasingly severe eye problems and for psychological help for his daughter, Lucia. I will get more about his eye problems later. They are pretty grim. Um, when France was occupied by Germany during World War II, Joyce moved back to Zurich in 1940. He died there in 1941 after a surgery for a perforated ulcer less than one month before his 59th. Dang. The rest of these facts are from a Mental Floss article entitled Fun Facts About James Joyce. That takes me back to the beginning of this podcast because yeah. that's how these facts started. We yeah. thought every author we covered yeah. would have a mental floss article like that. <laughs> I'll tell you, Pages, when I see the mental floss result there at the top of the Google page, I'm like, easy peasy. Nice. <laughs> Here we go. Um, so the first fact is James Joyce is only nine years old when his first piece of writing was published. In 1891, shortly after he had to leave Klongoe's Wood College when his father lost his job, the nine-year-old Joyce wrote a poem called Et tu, Healy? It was published by his father, John, and distributed to friends. The elder Joyce thought so highly of it, he allegedly sent copies to the Pope. And the Pope was like, what the heck is this? I need a new hat. <laughs> he does read everything that he gets. There are no known complete copies of the poem, uh, but the precocious student's verse allegedly denounced a politician named Tim Healy for abandoning 19th century Irish nationalist politician Charles Stuart Parnell after a sex scandal. Uh, fragments of the ending of the poem, later remembered by James's brother Stanislaus, showed Parnell looking down on Irish politicians. And here's your quote. His quaint 
perched eerie on the crags of time, where rude din of this century can trouble him no more. That's funny. Healy and Parnell also show up in this book, so I guess it was a fascination. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> that we have had fact sections like this before, where it's like, that's where they got everything in their book. Huh. <laughs> um, another fun fact is that Nora Barnacle, his eventual wife, ghosted him on their first date. Tight. Nice. Tight, tight, yes. They finally married in 1931, but they'd been together for 27 years before that and had two children. They first met in Dublin in 1904 when Joyce struck up a conversation with her near the hotel where Nora worked as a chambermaid. She says she initially mistook him for a Swedish sailor because of his blue eyes and the yachting cap he wore that day. And he charmed her so much that they set a date for June 14th, but she didn't show. Well. Mm. He then wrote her a letter saying, I looked for a long time at a head of reddish brown hair and decided it was not yours. I went home quite dejected. I would like to make an appointment, but it might not suit you. I hope you will be kind enough to make one with me if you have not forgotten me. So a little eager beaver there. You know. She's like, my last name is Barnacle. I'm looking for a sailor. You're not a sailor. Um, this letter actually got him the real first date, which took place on June 16th in 1904. Uh, Nora Barnacle would continue to be his muse throughout their life together. In both his published work, the character of Molly Bloom and Ulysses is based on her, and in their very voluminous personal correspondence. They have a long series of infamously dirty love letters to one another. There are many interesting quotes, which I cannot repeat to you on this podcast. Here's one that we can come close to saying, which is him signing off on one of the letters saying, good night, my little farting Nora. Good for you. Good for you, James. Um, in fact, one of Joyce's signed erotic letters to Nora fetched a record $446,000 at a London auction in 2000. It was bought by the guy who bought a Ulysses thinking it was a dirty book. He's like, finally, I got something from this guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, he had horrifically bad eyes. Um, he suffered from anterior uvitis. Uh, which led to a series of around 12 eye surgeries over his lifetime. So imagine having turn of the century eye surgery 12 times. Ooh. Scholars eventually speculated that his iritis, glaucoma, and cataracts could have been caused by sarcoidosis, syphilis, tuberculosis, or any number of congenital problems. We're not entirely sure, um, but they caused him a lot of pain and suffering. Um, they caused him to wear an eye patch for years on and off, forced him to do a lot of his writing in his later years on large white sheets of paper using red crayon. He, you're saying that he wrote on sales and he had an eye patch. You can't really blame Nora for thinking that he was a sailor. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, and then last here, I'm going to give you um, some people who did not enjoy James Joyce. So they would have rated him maybe even one star. First up is a friend of the podcast, Virginia Woolf. She didn't care for him at all. She compared his writing to, quote, a queasy undergraduate scratching his pimples. No, Which is interesting because I was... I didn't have time in the review, but there are some similarities to this book and The Waves that I was going to call out. I mm, think The Waves is one yeah. star better, though, so to her credit. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, she also said, quote, one hopes he'll grow out of it, but as Joyce is 40, this scarcely seems likely. <laughs> <laughs> Burns. H.G. <laughs> uh, Wells was asked uh, if he liked James Joyce, and he said, quote, do I get much pleasure from his work? No. Quote, who the hell is this Joyce who demands so many waking hours of the few thousand I still have to live for a proper appreciation of his quirks and fancies and flashes of rendering? <laughs> the, the ultimate, the final critic of his work is his wife, Nora, <laughs> who said after reading Ulysses, quote, why don't you write sensible books that people can understand? Funnily enough, they use H.G. Wells as a pull quote on, on the back of my copy. <laughs> So Did it must they? have been a very paired <laughs> pull quote. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Maybe he turned it around. I don't know. But yeah, that's James Joyce. Interesting guy. Bad eyes. <laughs> All right. And that is A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Three stars. Trace Estrellas. See. Um, well, Bailey, Andrew has given us a portrait of his opinion of... The book that he read. Can you paint us a picture of a contemporary politician? Uh, good transition, Toby. I appreciate that. Yes, I read a book this week. Yeah. 
I read Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld. Rodham, 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 Rodham. <laughs> I don't know if I followed that one. <laughs> Just moving on. <laughs> uh, so this book, you might have, might have heard of it. It came out in 2020, so I think a lot of people are reading it, you know, mid-pandemic. Uh-huh. Curtis Sittenfeld, we've covered before on the podcast. I read The Man of My Dreams, which I think I gave two stars. I did not care for that one. Um, and I've also read Prep. This book, obviously from the title, is about Hillary Rodham Clinton. But what? in this world, she is just Hillary Rodham because the premise is that it's an alternate history which guesses what would happen if Hillary had not married Bill. How many of the Infinity Stones does she have to find? Only four. Um, she already has the time stone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's, I almost want to have a longer log line, but you know, it's not that there's no plot. It's just, it's very easy to summarize. Um, we start out with Hillary, um, at Wellesley graduating and giving a speech to the other graduates, which really happened. Then she goes to Yale Law School where she meets William Jefferson Clinton. Um, and they start a relationship. Um, which is very passionate. She's looking for someone to fall in love with her mind. And she has a hard time finding that because men are turned off by her and consider her like another guy. (laughs) Um, Mm. And Bill sees the real Hillary and they fall in love and he proposes marriage several times. All of this is true. But in this version, when she moves to Arkansas, she notices some of his infidelity and she says no. And she moves on with her life and pursues a separate career and a separate political path. Um, So Mm. I don't want to talk more about it because part of the fun of it is seeing where Sittenfeld imagines Hillary going or Bill going because it all reads pretty possible. There are Mm. times too where she integrates real life quotes and real life events. So for example, Donald Trump is a character in the book and he says some of the things that he said in his own campaign, but it's in a different context in this book, but it's the same words. Yeah, because they get married. (laughs) No spoilers, but no, no, no. (laughs) So, yeah, the choices that she makes feel believable, feel true to who I know Hillary Clinton to be. Also, I really appreciated that it's not, this is a word I learned, hagiography. Hagiography, how do you say it? I don't know. It's not portraying hey, geography, her. I believe. Hey, yeah, it's not portraying her as a saint. She does some questionable things, um, which complicate your opinion of her. Where you know, ultimately, she makes some choices that feel very self-centered, um, and you know, gives excuses for herself. And you know, to be clear, I'm pro-Hillary, but you know, it's it's a complicated portrait. It's not gung ho. Yeah. Would you say um, it's not a hagiography? Yeah, yeah, I would say that it's not a hagiography. Oh, cool. Would you say it's not a hijab? Yeah. <laughs> no, it is that. It is that. Um, and all that, nice. you know, I would love to know what Hillary Clinton thinks of this book or Bill Clinton. Yeah. I, I feel like they must have read it. You know, how can you not? If it if it were you, I would read it. Bill mm-hmm. uh, Clinton, author, friend of the podcast. Hey, Hillary, check this out. <laughs> hey, Hill, Hill, I got this book. It's called Rodham. Do you think it's about you? It has your picture on it. Um, okay. That was pretty good. Good job, me. Did you do the thumb? I was doing the thumb. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, they call that out in the book. That's funny. I did not read that book. Depends what your definition <laughs> of book is. Okay, I'm stopping. <laughs> There's a lot of elves to this book. I really enjoyed it. I found it incredibly engrossing. I was into it from the beginning, and I liked it way better than I liked her other books. Um, so that was great. Another part that I liked about it is that she... I mean, guys, this is really going to shock you. I don't know if you're ready for this, but, you know, I think that I relate to young Hillary Clinton. Does that shock you? Does she hold grudges? Am I building this scenario? So (laughs) this is a quote from the book that literally is something that happened to me. After wild cheering, he said, now I'm not the only Democrat running and I respect my opponents, but one in particular, she's been in Washington for decades. And I think it's time for some innovation, some disruption of politics as usual. If we stick to the same old, same old of lobbyists and special interests, we'll get the same old results. Wait, what? I haven't <laughs> this, tried. This happened Wait, to you? When did you run for president? Okay. Okay. Were you on the national political stage and I missed it? Okay. Literal was the wrong word. Um, but I was the president of my sophomore class, and then this other dude, 
who's kind of a blowhard, came up to the stage Whoa. when we were doing re-election, and he said, guys, aren't you tired of the same old, same old that we've had gesturing toward me? And everybody <laughs> booed and cheered, and I lost the election. <laughs> <laughs> That's an example of when I related to Hillary. Um, and then here's one more quote. Um, <laughs> Bailey was running on a make AP classes mandatory for every student platform, though. So, <laughs> uh, This is a quote where high school Hillary, you know, thinks about it and realizes she has a crush on this guy at school. And then she comes into school the next day and doesn't know what to do with her hands. You know what I mean? So she says, the following Monday, Mr. Heap's classroom was empty when I entered it, which threw me off. In my imagination, Bruce had already been there when I arrived for our post-Thanksgiving reunion. As I moved a chair desk around to face out, my own body felt unwieldy. And when I sat, I couldn't remember how I usually positioned my legs or what expression my face ought to settle into. I was probably in the classroom for all of a minute by myself when Brian entered and casually said, as if my mind had not spent the last five days kissing him, it smells like spoiled milk in the hall. <laughs> anyway, I think Curtis very much understands what it is to be an ambitious young woman. Um, <laughs> and that comes out on the page. Ambitious about kissing. <laughs> um, so I was really into this book. I was sure it was going to be five stars. And oh, no. then Little Orcs came in near the end. Hey there, Bailey. It was the Little Just Orcs. Just a little um, I got turned off a little bit by the structure of it because we know you know, a lot about Hillary Clinton's career. We know a lot about the politics that happened, you know, from the 90s to today. And the book, without spoiling anything, stops at 2018, you know, and it came out later. And so I wanted to know, well, what would have happened after that? Like, keep going, finish, finish mm. the thought. Tell me more about what would have happened with Hillary and Bill and Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera. Does she find the heart of the ocean again? How many infinity stones does she get? Um, mm -hmm. The book is very bed to bed near the end. And like it goes like, I woke up this day and I did this, this, this. And there are so many details to the point that I got a sense of foreboding. Like surely that detail will come back because why would she spend so much time explaining it if it's not important? Uh -huh. But it didn't really happen. And I would rather her have spent more time imagining, you know, into the future. But all this to say, I really enjoyed it. I really recommend reading it, and I give it four stars. Nice. Ooh, four star central. Yeah. Nice. Um, do you have any facts? I was just going to ask on Hillary Clinton. Nope. <laughs> on uh, Curtis Sittenfeld. I do. I do. Um, we have covered her before, as you mentioned. Um but got some very short facts from her website. And then I've got an interview that she did with Vox about this very book. Because it depends what your definition of Kurt is, is. So, Curtis Sittenfeld <laughs> is the best-selling author of seven novels by now. Prep, The Man of My Dreams, American Wife, Sisterland, Eligible, Rodham, and Romantic Comedy, which was picked for Reese Witherspoon's book club. Woo! Ooh. Reese the Beast. She got it. <laughs> mm. uh, her first short story collection, You Think It, I'll Say It, was published in 2018. Her books have been selected by the New York Times, Time, Entertainment Weekly, and People for their 10 Best Books of the Year lists. Option for television and film. I believe Rodham. Uh, has it already come out on Hulu or is it still yet to come out, my television people? It's going to be a show. I didn't know. Well, there you go. It hasn't come out yet. <laughs> um, um, option for television and film and translated into 30 languages. She has appeared as a guest on NPR's Fresh Air, CBS's Early Show, and PBS's News Hour. Four times been a Jeopardy answer, and once cool. been yeah. an answer in a word search puzzle. Mm. Only once? How could you prove that? <laughs> <laughs> She's got her priorities right in terms of her accolades. So the rest of this is from an interview with Vox, and the interviewer is Constance Grady. Constance asks, One of my favorite things in reading this book, and what struck me so immediately, is how spot-on of a match it is for Hillary Clinton's actual voice. Curtis says, Her voice was actually more challenging for me to hear in my head, or just sort of summon my inner ear. For example, Bill Clinton's voice. Um, I actually think that I had a breakthrough when I listened to a podcast that had been created by the Clinton Foundation. It was a campaign tool called With Her, and it was created in the fall of 2016. She's talking with the host of it, a man named Max Linsky, and there's no pretense that it's not a completely pro-Hillary podcast. She's on board with it, and she's very relaxed. Some of it is interviews with her, and then some of it's Bill or a senior campaign staffer or Chelsea. 
And actually, it was almost disorienting in the first few minutes because I felt like I heard her voice in a way I'd never quite heard it, which actually made me think about how there's this almost always in her conversation with most reporters, this sort of adversarial undertone or this skepticism on the part of the journalist, which I think she, of course, perceives and responds to. And it just felt like her voice was, I mean, again, it's meant for public consumption, the podcast is, but it felt like it was closer to being her unfiltered voice. I would agree. Honestly, there were parts that I forgot that it wasn't Hillary Clinton. Wow. You know, I don't know what her inner thoughts were, but it seems plausible. Hillary, you wrote a book. You should have told me. (laughs) That was actually pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty solid. Um, So Constance uh, asks a question. Was it ever nerve wracking for you to try to enter so intimately into the head of someone who is still alive? With American Wife, your previous book about Laura Bush, you weren't using her name. But with Rodham, it's right there on the cover. Um, Curtis answers. I felt like I wanted to do a good job. I didn't want to write a book that would get attention because it had a provocative premise. And of course, it's super subjective. So I feel like I pulled off what I was trying to achieve. I'm sure that there are some people who think like, oh, this is so cheap. But I think that what I'm doing is so clearly the premise of the book is what if Hillary hadn't married Bill? It's so clear in real life that she did. And this is a creative, imaginative, artistic project that it almost seems akin to a Saturday Night Live skit. Would someone say to Kate McKinnon, quote, was it daunting to play Hillary Clinton? Yeah, but Kate McKinnon doesn't have to describe like sex scenes with Bill Clinton. (laughs) You don't know what her process is, Bailey. (laughs) She does a lot of prep. And so here's our our final question here. Um, Constance asks, do you have a particular hope for what your book might produce? What would people come away with if your ideal message was received? And this is always, I feel like, a tough question for interviewers to ask. Let's see what Curtis says. I feel like if I had one very clear, succinct argument, I would probably write an editorial or probably a creative bumper sticker and not write 400 pages of a novel. I think that novels can do this very special thing, which is put us in someone else's shoes, especially when the novel is in the first person, which I have a particular fondness for. And just think about the kind of daily texture of someone's life in the small moments and range of emotions. And even though I know that some people think like, oh, it's intrusive to write a book like this, or even it's disrespectful, I actually feel it's kind of flabbergasting how disrespectfully Hillary Clinton has been treated for how long by how many people. And I welcome the opportunity to think of her as a real person who has feelings and is complicated and has a lot of strength. And she's not some feminist punching bag. She's not a punchline either. She's also this incredible trailblazer. She's complicated, and I think she's admirable. See, that's a exactly what I came away from the book with. That's great. Well, I wonder if she'll keep that tune once Hillary writes Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> Sittenfeld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an author. Man, man, man. <laughs> yeah, that Curtis Sittenfeld and her thoughts on writing Rodham. So, sounds like a good book. Great facts, Toby. Yeah, Thank great you. facts. Um, and that is Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld. Four stars. Guys, guess what? What? Dylan's doing the game this week. Dylan, Dylan, do you have a game for us? I do. It's called Portrait of a Young First Lady. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And that's the last we're going to be doing with Joyce, because I do not have enough time to read a whole Wikipedia article on that book, so <laughs> we're going to be focusing on First Ladies. Okay. Got it, got it. Um, here's the thing, guys. I went down a First Lady rabbit hole, and some of them were crazy interesting, actually, but um, I chose nine of them. And oh, I have no. like a fun sentence or a fun fact about them. Um, I'll give you a choice of three of them. Now, the way this will work is that the first person will guess and then it'll be them versus the power couple. And so the first person will guess. And if they guess wrong, then the other two could steal for a half point each. But they have to agree on the name. Okay. Oh. Okay. So you have a 50-50 shot. All right. Cool. And do we have turns or is it? It's turns. Yeah. We're going to do it snake draft style. Snake draft. What? It means we go all the way around and then back. It'll become clear, Toby. (laughs) Okay. I'm scared. I don't want snakes. Bailey. Yes. She was the first first lady to own and drive a car to support women's suffrage and publish her memoirs. Helen Taft, Grace Coolidge, or Frances Cleveland. Ooh. I'm going to say Taft. That is correct. Yes. Oh. No points for Toby Andrew. Andrew, she was a famous contralto singer who developed pneumonia after a concert and died 20 months before her husband took office. Ida McKinney, Mm. Ellen Wilson, Rachel Jackson. It's not Wilson because she controversially was still alive during his, when he was not really with it. 
I think Jackson's too early, so I think it's McKinley. McKinley. That is correct. <laughs> yes. I thought I was going to history trip you up because I said his first wife, Ellen Wilson, who did die early. Toby. All right. Before becoming first lady, she served as unofficial first lady to a widowed president while her husband served in his cabinet. Huh. Dolly Madison, Francis Cleveland, or Sarah Polk. Sounds like some weird old-timey stuff. Madison. Correct. Whoa, you guys got all of them right. <laughs> that was a raw, unadulterated guess. So, <laughs> well, Toby, me. guess again, because first lady born in a foreign country, England. She played the harp and wrote satirical plays and raised silkworms. Martha Washington, Elizabeth Monroe, or Louisa Adams? Um, Adams? That is correct. Nice. <laughs> That's John Quincy's wife too, yes. right? Oh, because I was going to say Abigail Adams is the is the other one. Yep. I got thrown for a second. Go team guessing. Andrew, the first yep. to hold seances in the White House and first to call oh. for abolition of slavery, Jane Pierce, Mary Todd Lincoln, or Abigail Fillmore. I think I know this one. I think it's Lincoln because of her child who passed. I'm going to say Lincoln. That is correct. I knew she hosted seances in the White House. Yeah, me too. Bailey. Yeah. She was the first lady to hold regular press conferences, write a daily newspaper column, and host a weekly radio show. Eleanor Roosevelt, Jackie Kennedy, or Betty Ford? I'm going to say Eleanor Roosevelt. That is correct. What? Oh, yes. What? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on here? I just couldn't imagine Jackie doing press conferences. Jackie Kennedy was the first one to do a television interview, and also she interviewed John F. Kennedy for dating him. That's interesting. Okay. That's cool. Um, Bailey, she was the captain of the freshman soccer team and wrote a memoir from her dog's perspective. Rosalind Carter, Laura Bush, Barbara Bush. Oh, two Bushes. That's hard. I know the answer. Thank Laura Bush? That is incorrect. Andrew. Toby, is it Barbara I, I or Rosalind? It, is it Barbara, Andrew? I think it's Barbara because she had that like spaniel. That she yeah. Had, but then the soccer seems more Carter, but I think I'm, I'm happy to go with Barbara if you are. Let's go, Babs. Babbies. That yeah. is correct for a half point each. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I pictured Laura Bush more on the soccer team. I pictured Laura Dern on the soccer team. <laughs> um, Andrew. Yeah? First first lady to vote fly in an airplane, operate a movie camera, own a radio, and invite movie stars to the White House. She was very glamorous. Florence wow. Harding, Mammy Eisenhower, or Ellen Wilson? I think Wilson is too early for some of the things you're saying. So it's got to be mm. Harding. But you didn't say maybe murdered her husband, which I feel like you would have put in for <laughs> Harding. I'm still going to say Harding. That is correct. Actually, deleted. Yes. So I was about to put that in. It's like, no, that's a little too on the nose. Interesting. I didn't know that fact. If you didn't know, she did try to murder her husband. Or she did. Un unconfirmed. We're pro Florence Harding murders. Is this seriously the last question? Wait, just so we recap points. Bailey can't win. Bailey can't win. Only you and I can tie, Andrew, or I can lose it. Yeah. Okay, so, all right. I can win. Toby and I can tie. This yeah, is very basically. exciting. Sorry, Bailey. <laughs> Okay, I got right. one wrong. <laughs> well, we're very talented. <laughs> and this had one of the crazier backstory things. First woman to graduate from Stanford University with a geology degree, spoke Chinese fluently, and was head of the Girl Scouts of America. Edith Wilson, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, Lou Hoover. Oh, boy. I don't... I, uh... Wilson, Hoover, and who? Roosevelt? Roosevelt. I want to say Roosevelt? Oh. And, Andrew, do you think I sense is saying Hoover? Mine is too because I I don't like know if they stayed there the whole time, but the Wilsons were like a New Jersey family. Yeah, um, let's, let's go Hoover. Yeah, let's go with Hoover. That is correct. Yeah. Oh, yes. Boo. I didn't also know this that every first lady since them becomes an honorary Girl Scout. I was going to say I thought every first lady was oh. the head of the Girl Scouts. <laughs> is that the official title? <laughs> so that means. So Bailey and Toby tie with two and a half points each, and Andrew wins with four. This is wow. the smartest I have ever felt. <laughs> <laughs> you really earned it, Andrew. You really, I don't think you missed one, even on your like bonus questions. Again, I only missed one. <laughs> <laughs> Toby only missed one. Yeah. We apparently are very good at deducing first ladies. <laughs> well, that was a fun game, Dylan, even though I lost. Um, Great game. 
you know, great knowledge, everyone. That was the best game. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time, Dylan, for you to shine again. It's time for you to choose books at random from our shelves to read next on our vacations. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. I don't want to read this book on my vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Andrew, are you ready for your choosing? Yeah. Are you going to read it on your vacation? Oh, no. Depends. (laughs) How much are you looking forward to your vacation? I won't. I don't want you to play with me any longer. <laughs> because number thirty, I have some questions for you by Rebecca Mackay. Your friend and mine. Oh, okay, you punk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. This is great. I'm not going to read it on my vacation because I have four weeks to read it, and I don't think I'll need four weeks to read it. But I'm excited Damn. to. I think everyone else in this podcast has read it at this point, oh, so we should have true, a good actually. discussion. Yeah. True. Yeah, yeah. That's very true. I enjoyed it. Uh, Your friend and mine. Has some questions for you. Rebecca Mackay just came out with a short story about another alternate history from the perspective of the mother of Eloise from, you know, the Eloise books. Where's my child? (laughs) (laughs) It it was enjoyable. So anyway, my book. (laughs) All right, Andrew, you really got me with that one. (laughs) And Bailey. Yes. Are you ready for the choosing? Why are you whispering? Bailey. What? Are you ready for the book that I'm going to choose for you? I don't like this. I think I know which one this is. This is uh, the ASMR podcast where we'll pick a book. No. Like. Stop. Number 117, The Whisper Man by Alex North. Ah, Whisper Man. Picture Man. (laughs) 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 Okay, cool. All I know about this one is it's a horror book and there's like a handprint on the cover. And a long time ago, I thought it sounded scary and I bought it. So I'm excited for it. It sounds very scary. I don't. So in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading The Whisper Man by Alex North, and Toby is reading Falconer by John Cheever. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And a great way to help us find new listeners is to rate and review our podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, It really helps us find new people, and we love to see the reviews. And you always have the option of, instead of a review, putting in a large treatise on Catholic theology in the uh, (laughs) comment section of the podcatcher. Uh, Yes, and if you're imagining to yourself an alternate history in which your husband proposes to you, but you don't accept him, and he becomes your friend instead, recommend that friend our podcast. Woo-hoo. Does that work? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, tell your you can't about recommend this it to your husband. So that's <laughs> true. Please don't recommend it to your husband. Please, uh, but recommend it to your friends, to anybody in your life who likes books. Uh, word of mouth is the best way of people to hear of our podcast because they really believe it when it comes from you. So tell people about us, please. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books, books. books.